Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Laker fans, how you doing this morning? Cowboy fans, how are you living? And all of you folks who are both Laker and Cowboy fans, because I know there are a lot of you out there, this has got to be a hell of a morning because your teams are having a hell of a week. You know, like the Venn diagram of awful is centered right on Laker Cowboy fans. It's a coin flip as to where to start this morning. I can't lose. I could start in either place and win. Do I start with Mike McCarthy's attempt to explain that comedic loss? Or do I start with the Lakers melting down at home against the Pacers? Damn, where do I start? I think I'll start with the Lakers because with Frank Vogel coaching for his bleeping life, they end up losing to Indiana at home and Russell Westbrook finally gets benched. The whole Russell Westbrook to the Lakers thing seems to be working out pretty well, isn't it, Braun? I mean, Braun? The only thing worse than Braun and management bringing Russ to L.A. was Braun bringing himself to Space Jam 2. Bringing Russ to L.A. may or may not be forgivable. Putting Space Jam 2 on even one movie screen, even one time, is absolutely unforgivable. I mean, you can forgive almost anything of anybody in this country, especially if you're a celebrity, and they own it, and they say they're sorry, and they mean it. Almost anything will be forgiven. Not Space Jam 2. There's some things you cannot forgive, ever, for any reason. No matter who you are, and no matter how many times you apologize, Space Jam 2 is at the very top of that list. How Braun made one of the best things ever... The single worst thing ever, I have no idea. Not the Lakers. The Space Jam franchise. Great, great player. Worst movie maker ever. You know, frankly, it makes me and Mike embarrassed to be associated (laughs) with the first one. Well, probably unfair for me to speak for my co-star, 45. I've never heard that. But you know he's thinking the same thing I am. Only difference is, I'm not afraid to say it. Anyway, back to Russ. Who knew that when they traded for Russell Westbrook, they were also firing one of the best postseason coaches in team history? To that point, I'm going to read this tweet that Chris Haynes posted late last night. Quote, L.A. Lakers, Los Angeles Lakers, will not be making a personnel move at this juncture, and Frank Vogel will travel with the team tomorrow to coach in Orlando on Friday, league sources tell Yahoo Sports. End of quote. Translation, he's getting fired. Just not today. He's getting fired. We just have not decided when. That's the only thing that can mean. If you leak that you are not firing a coach right now, that means you're firing him sometime soon. And if that's the case, my point, fire the guy right now. Do the guy right now. Bring in that local news guy who dunked on Doug Collins and put Vogel out of his misery. If you're getting ready for work right now, then you're probably not Doug Collins. The way the Lakers have handled Vogel means they'll probably break him off in a way that's even colder than that news guy right there. And again, can I be clear? 
Frank Vogel does not deserve this. He deserves way better than to be fired. He deserves way better than to get jammed. As hard as he's been jammed ever since they hired him. And he definitely deserves way better than Kurt Rambis sitting in on meetings with him and his staff. But if you're going to do daily updates on this guy's job status and leak this and leak that, if you're going to do that every day on his job status, then make the job status fired and done. Break him off. Don't let a guy like that twist. You don't bring this guy on a six-game road trip with everybody knowing that he's dead man walking. If you're going to do the guy, do him now and make it a clean, dignified, honorable death. He deserves that. He led you to a world championship. The guy doesn't deserve this because, again, it's not his fault. And just putting it all on the coach is way too convenient and really idiotic. And then letting that same guy twist the way you are is even worse. No, I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying he's without blame. But he's not the one who should be wearing this the way he is. The front office and ownership should. Because this smacks of the old Lakers. This smacks of the era when the ram by. We're running the organization right into the ground and making it a laughing stock of the league. This is like when Magic was quitting so he could tweet. This is like when they were treating coaches like alternate jerseys and running through a few per year. I mean, I thought we were past all this. When they won it all, I thought that we'd finally move past all this. But I was wrong. And it's not just on the front office and on ownership. The players, how about the players? They know their coach is fighting for his job, and they still show up and they get worked by a Pacers team that was 14 games under 500 coming in. The Pacers are rebuilding. In fact, they're not just rebuilding. They're actively looking to blow it up. The Lakers lost to them by seven at the crypt with their coach's job on the line. I mean, how about this? Like Publicly, they seem to like Vogel. Publicly, they seem to indicate, we like the coach. But then they go out and they just bury that same guy by getting buried by the Pacers. And that's after they led Indiana by double digits in the second quarter. So with pressure surrounding everybody, the Lakers just play their favorite card. They jump out to a healthy lead, then they nap it out, and then they lose to a terrible team. Because that's who they are, and that's what they do, and they're damn good at it. At least Vogel, who probably knows what's up, tried something different this time, and he benched Westbrook for the final three minutes and 52 seconds of that game. At least I think that it was Vogel who benched Russ, because according to Dave McManaman, the move was actually sanctioned by management. Quote, Frank Vogel was given assurances that the organization would support him in taking a hard line while coaching the star. End of quote. I don't know, kind of convoluted, right? So who called that? Was it the coach asking permission or was it management telling him to do so? I mean, I know this. The fact that they signed off on it, the organization knows that Russ has been a complete disaster. But instead of owning it, they run a misdirection and they put it all on the coach. As if any coach, dead or alive, could make this disaster work. According to the report, 
The coaching staff has wanted to do this for a long time, but they, quote, always refrained because of worries about the lasting impact on Westbrook's psyche. End of quote. Man, what an awesome situation. What an awesome place to be. You know that the guy is killing you on both ends almost every night, but benching him might kill you even more. In other words, the cure is worse than the poison itself. And there's more. There's always more. With 8.2 seconds left, Russ leaves the floor and left the locker room before his teammates finished showering. So left the game before it was over and then left the locker room before his teammates were done. Way to own it, Russ. Pro's pro. Pro's pro right there. And then what about Vogel? Like he's generally been very supportive of Russ even as Westbrook has been destroying that team on a nightly basis. But even Vogel has had enough. When he was asked why after the game, why he benched Westbrook, this is what he said. Playing the guys I thought were going to win the game. And even that's pretty supportive, right? I mean, playing the guys that I thought were going to win the game is a pretty good shot, but not nearly as big a run as he could have taken at him, right? I mean, if you really wanted to answer the question... He could have answered the question like, why did I bench him? I don't know. Why don't we start with the fact that he can't make a damn shot? He can't make a basket. How about he's a defensive liability? How about he's a turnover factory? How about the fact he was minus 18 on the floor against a crappy team like the Pacers? Playing the guys I thought were going to win the game. Yeah, that actually starts to sound pretty good when you consider what he could have said. So, when you've got a situation like this, and management starts telling a head coach what he can, he can't do during games. It's over. When you have the team leaking that they're not going to fire the coach today, it's only a matter of time before they fire the coach. Once Kurt bleeping Rambis is allowed in on coaching meetings and giving coaching advice, it's definitely over. So if it's over, and it is, get it done and move on for everybody's sake. Like, the Lakers could not be any more disappointing overall, and they could not handle this situation any worse than they are, and the worst part is none of it's surprising. Which brings us back to the de facto GM, Braun. As you can imagine, Braun got a little touchy when this all came up after the game, a little bit grouchy. He was asked about Westbrook not being out there at the end of the game, and this is how he chose to answer the question. How was Russ after the game? Is that the sort of thing that bothers him? Um, <laughs> have you followed Russ throughout his career? <laughs> okay. Have you followed Russ throughout this season? Yeah. Now, would you think that would bother Russ not being in the late game? Okay. Great answer. Yeah, you should quote yourself. <laughs> you guys want to quote us all the time. Quote yourself. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I'm going to the movies with my wife, man. I gotta go. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to endear him to everybody who already is not happy with him. You gotta love these guys that answer questions with questions and kind of try and intimidate and bully and, and put it on the reporter and you don't know Jack. You never played the game and what do you think? And thank you. I'm going to go to the movies with my wife. Gotta go. How many things are wrong with that? Going to see a movie with your wife. 
Dude, are you seriously trying to plug your movie again? It's dead already. The franchise is. With all due respect, after a painful loss to a terrible Pacer team that you actually had to have, do you really think that subjecting yourself to even more pain and watching Space Jam 2 is going to help? How is that movie even out in a theater still? I thought that it would have been on VHS by now or in some bargain bin at Best Buy. Dude, let it go. Like Vogel benched Russ, you need to bench the Space Jam. Bench the salt. Bench the Space Jam. Bench the salt. Thank you. I'm going to the movie. And stop acting like we are all to blame for this. You're under 500. Absolutely you are what your record says you are. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Don't make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper instead. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you are buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. And if you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Dana White joins me in studio. Dana, it has been a minute. In fact, it's probably been two years since you and I sat down together to chop it up like this. It is great to see you. Great to have this opportunity. What's up, my man? How you living? How you I'm feeling? awesome. Everything's good. How are you? I feel great. Everything is good here. You feeling good? Yeah, yeah. Couldn't be better, man. Uh, you know, we're going into the Honda Center. It's actually two and a half years since, since, since I've been here. But like two and a half years, um, the, the Rolling Stones... <laughs> With the number one Dude, uh, gate you, you at the Honda You beat me to Center. it. I was going to ask you about that, right? No, actually, you were number one, yes. and then the Stones came, came in, and they ripped it from you. That's exactly Are right. Are you going to rip it back this weekend? You know the story better than I do. Yes, yeah, I do. So their, their gate was $3.5 million. This gate's going to be over 5 this weekend. And uh, so we're number one and number three all time at, at the Honda Center. Well, so at least you're not competitive about that stuff. Stuff not like that doesn't matter to you usually. <laughs> not even a little bit. All right. So at the top of the card, you've got the two big dogs. You've got Ngano and Gone, the heavyweight champion versus the interim champion. It's an incredible matchup. Now, you've had some really, really amazing heavyweight title fights in the past. Where does this matchup rank amongst those great ones before it? Yeah, th- this stylistically, you couldn't get a better fight and everything. The drama going into this with the contract negotiations with with. Frank Francis, you got the bad blood between the camps because Francis used to come out of this camp. They used to train together. Uh, Francis is the champion. He's the interim champion. Francis has one punch knockout power, 100% finish rate, and many people believe that technically Cyril Gaon is the best heavyweight fighter of all time when it comes to striking. So you couldn't ask for Vince McMahon couldn't write a better script than this. Dana, why are you so fired up, man? How many cups of coffee did you have this morning? <laughs> none, you feeling actually. It? None. 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 Yeah. What, are you, what are you running I had on? a Randy's Donut. <laughs> I'm on Randy's Donuts right now. I love now. that. I got to get me one. All right. So you talk <laughs> about stylistically. This is so true, right? So when you have a couple of guys, and both these guys have great punching power, but it's more than that. When you've got a couple of heavyweights, and either one of them can put a guy to sleep, and I mean for a long time with one shot, is there a different vibe and a different energy in the building on a night like that? 100%. You know, when the heavyweights get in there and, and start mixing it up, and especially when you have two guys that are that are big strikers like these two are, yes, there's a buzz and an energy. That place is sold out on Saturday. It's going to be rocking. The co-main event, Brandon Moreno, first Mexican-born UFC champion. Kids become a huge star for us. You'll see it Saturday night when he walks out. Figueredo, um, 
posted a picture of himself like a week ago, ripped to shreds. This guy, which means this guy's taking it serious. Um, and he hasn't even started cutting weight yet. So God knows what this guy's going to look like tomorrow when he steps on the scale. That's a great fight. And the card is stacked with a ton of other great fights. Dana White joining me in studio. My first in-studio guest since pre-pandemic. So let me just jump around. I'm going to follow you around. These two guys, this is their third time in over a year that they have fought. That, yeah. tells, that tells you the nature of that rivalry. In fact, in your mind, how great is that rivalry? Yeah, no, when you get fights like this... Um, you know, and, and people get excited to see the third one. It's not like, ah, we saw this already. No, the, every time you know that this is going to be a good one. And the fact that Figueredo took this so seriously, and that guy's a savage, and Brandon Moreno is so beloved and, and, and has already been claimed, uh, you know, by the Mexican fans, fun what, fight. What, what do you think the reaction is going to be of the Mexican fight fans when he shows up there oh, in Anaheim? The, the place will go crazy in Anaheim, yeah. The, the kids actually become... A big star in a year, and, and and you know he's a typical Mexican fighter that 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 Mexicans love to get behind and support. Man, he's got nothing but heart. Comes forward and figures out ways to win. All right, so back to the big news for a minute. You mentioned Engano and Gone, and the fact that the nature of their relationship. There was this great moment I thought at UFC 268 where Francis walks past Gone like he's not even there. Like, how would you describe the relationship between those two dudes? Yeah, it's not good. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of bad blood. <laughs> Not just between them, but between the camps, and you know, um, it's just it's such a great story. Dan Ingano, you mentioned relationships. Like, what, what's going on? Like, he says he wants to fight, but he's not getting the opportunities. Then he told ESPN that he would not fight under his current deal. I know you've heard all these things. What is your reaction to it? Yeah, you know, Francis and I have had our moments since he's been with us. Uh, you know, this isn't our first uh, our first uh, time, so. What's crazy is two weeks ago in Vegas, we're at this restaurant called Delilah at the Wynn, and uh, our uh, our tables are literally right next to each other. Uh. And, uh, you know, so the universe got us together. We talked. We had a good conversation. Um, you know, that needed to happen, and, and we'll see how this thing plays out. Is it fixed, or are you still working on it? Yeah, it's definitely not fixed, and uh, but but I believe, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I believe everything is fixable. All right, so he says he wants to box. What, yep. do you, what do you make of that, and what happens if he gets into a boxing ring? All, all these guys think they want to box. You know, uh, him boxing Tyson Fury. What would happen? Is not, he's got that kind of power that anything could happen, but, you know, he, he should be worried about Saturday night. No, I, what, think. Well, I, yeah, think, he, I think so. Okay, he what needs about- to worry about Saturday. That's one of the problems when you start jumping over and, and, and thinking about things that, that focus on Cyril Gaon. And, and winning this fight. So what about Gon? Like, we, what did he show you in the way he handled Derek Lewis? And then how much of that translates to fighting Francis? I mean, the guy's undefeated. The guy's undefeated. He's never been beaten. And then exactly like you just said, for him to walk through Derek Lewis the way that he did, Derek Lewis beat Francis, you know, in one of the probably the most horrible heavyweight fight you will ever see in your life. Uh, but, he, you know, he beat him. It's going to be interesting. Again, Another part of the story leading into Saturday. You know, I'll tell you another part of the story. Like, you've got the champ, and he's an underdog in almost every single book right now. Right. You've got the interim champ, who's the favorite, and that, that's not by shock either. Like, when it comes to striking technique, how dangerous. Maybe not that single one-punch shot, but striking technique, how dangerous is he? But, but that's part of my problem with this whole thing. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about you don't want to fight under your contract. You're talking about, you know, he gets a piece of pay-per-view, whatever we saw, you know, like like all the other champions do. 
you're, you're worried about all these other things. Oh, I want to box Tyson Fury. I want to I want to do this. I want to do that. You're the underdog on Saturday night. You're not, you're not some huge 10-to-1 favorite. You want to move on. And focus on, beat, beat Cyril Gaon. Win this fight. Then you can start talking about the possibility of other things. Dana, this is why every coach in the history of the world has always said, limit distractions, limit distractions, be where your feet are. You know, all that bull crap, all that stuff, there's something to it, right? And especially when you're in a sport where the other guy is punching you in the face and trying to choke you out for a living. 100%. Even more so to be where your feet are. 100%. And, 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 and let's be honest, you know, uh, Fr- Francis is in a place where he's made a lot of money. You know, he's building a big house back in his home country in, in, in Africa. He's building gyms for kids over there. He's doing all these things. You know, Cyril Gaon wants what this guy's got. You got that guy that's coming up and, and, and is hungry, you know? Yeah, you, nobody has enough money. No, Nobody's ever going to say, oh, they're paying me way too much. I, You know, I, 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 got, I got too much money. But this guy has made some real money, and he's doing, you know, he's out there spending it and doing his thing. Cyril Gaon wants that real money now. You and I have talked about this a million times, like that point going back to Connor. Once you have $100 million in the bank, is it worth getting up and doing that work? Do you have that same ferocity? Do you still want it as badly? Do you still want to get punched in the face every day for a living? You and I have talked about that. So what I'm hearing is John Jones gets the winner, right? Oh, I have no idea. I think what's going to happen bad, is— That was a bad joke, Dana. No, no. Well, well, here's the reality. I, I, you know, John Jones is going to be watching— uh, closely, just like everybody else is on Saturday night, and uh, I'm sure we'll hear from him after the fight and, and see what he's what he's thinking, or before the end of the fight, probably. Yeah, or, yeah, or that. All right, so this is gonna be an amazing night, and there's so many other things still. I mean, not to contradict ourselves, we're focused on this, but there's other really good things coming up too. For instance, UFC 272, March 5th. Colby Covington, Jorge Masvidal. Needless to say, this is a big, big Masvidal house. I cannot wait for this fight. We've all been waiting for this fight. It's finally going to come together. How hyped are you, and how do you see that going? Incredible fight. Yep. Long overdue. Again, the the storyline, the backstory for this goes on for days. These guys hate each other. Um, you know, and, and Colby Covington, realistically, if Kamaru Usman did not exist... Colby Covington would be a very dominant champion in the 170-pound division. He is tough. He is for real. And this guy shows up to fight. Uh, Jorge Masvidal, you know, what this guy has accomplished over the last couple of years to, to become a huge superstar. Yeah, this, this is a very fun fight. You know what? Everything about this fight is fun. The press conferences are going to be fun. The weigh-ins are going to be fun. And then the fight itself is going to be fun. I, I don't want to say something that I even say, like, believe me, these dudes would throw in the backyard for free because they wouldn't, but they might. Yeah, they no, would. we got to keep that from happening leading up to this fight, for yeah, sure. Well, well, what about that? Like, where do you draw that line, Dan? Like, you want that energy. You want that heat. You don't want these guys giving each other the hands at a press. No, no way in hell. But where do you draw the line, <laughs> though? You don't, but you also, you want them to be who they are, and they will. Yeah, and, 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 you know, that's our job. Our job is to make sure that that doesn't happen. You know, Ma- Masvidal walked over and, and punched uh, uh, Edwards. Edwards, yeah, exactly. And, and by the way, what's better than that? I'm still <laughs> waiting for a rematch of that fight. Yeah, well, he, he Edwards is getting a shot at, uh, at uh, Camaro, so those two will fight next. But, yeah, I, I mean, there's just... Dana, there's nothing you haven't Ma- seen. Masvidal just doesn't talk. Masvidal doesn't just say, hey... You know, I'll come over there and do it. He, he did. doesn't even he say did. it. He, did. he just does it. Yeah, three-piece. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, and <laughs> I mean, it, what a great moment that was. I, it, you can't tell me that wasn't awesome, right? It wasn't awesome, but it was, it was not awesome. Because let me tell you when it yes, happened. Yes, it was, Dan. I'll tell you the it, backstory. Not only was on it this. awesome, Dan, it was the best thing ever. That happened in, in England? Yeah, it did. 
And Edwards is from England. And yep. Edwards is a real guy. Edwards isn't like, Edwards is exactly like a Masvidal. He's a real guy. We had to get Masvidal out of the country as fast as possible. Right. That was like, for Edwards' hometown, it was like a, it was like a, a a caravan of people heading over. Like the village was coming. To, yeah, exactly. So yeah, no, there was absolutely nothing awesome about that. And uh, yeah, it, awesome it, for you I was as say, a fan. I was going to say, not it, awesome for me. If by nothing awesome you mean everything awesome, <laughs> then I, I get you. I see you working. Awesome speaking, for fans. Dana, speaking of awesome, my guy, my dude, Nate Diaz, <laughs> man's all over Twitter right now. He's pushing hard for Dustin Poirier. He tweeted yesterday a picture of him across from Poirier with the message, quote. At UFC, stop playing with me. Consider this my signature to fight this bleeper. I've been trying to fight for a minute. Quit slowing down the real game. It's time. End of tweet. What did you make of that tweet? I, I didn't see it. I heard about it yesterday. But here's the reality. You know, we, we got all these guys, 750 guys under contract. You know, I'm contractually obligated to get these guys three fights a year. We're booked right now till May, like mm -hmm. May 2nd or something like that. Diaz will get a fight when the time comes. Danny, is he going to get that fight, or do you have something else in mind for him? I don't know. You know, as we get closer to to the date that he would fight, we'll uh, we'll see what the landscape looks like, and you know, we'll see what's next. Dana White chopping it up with me. We're having a good time. We're in studio. It's the first time we've done this in a couple of years. How about that video you tweeted of Nate, where he made that dude flinch in Tampa? How incredible was that? Like, how many times did you watch that? And how funny is that? Yeah, I, I think the thing ended up with like eight million views, and I was two million of them. <laughs> It's so, so funny. So funny. Yeah, I know. I, you know, I know that guy's all bummed out. You don't want to be that guy, but uh, it, it was hilarious. He was pissed. All right. So now if you and I are having a conversation, there's no way we're not talking about one of my favorite dudes ever, Kamzat Chemaev. Uh, I mean, I can't keep up with all the cats that this guy's called out. Dan, I bet since you and I started this conversation, he's already challenged half the roster in the last ten minutes. In what, two weight divisions. What, too. what is the latest with him in two weight divisions? We're, we're working on him uh, right now. Obviously. You know, we want to get him back in there as soon as possible, too. It's like Nate Diaz is like, I want to fight right now. You know, I want Hamza to fight right now, too. But it doesn't always work out that way. So as as soon as we can get Hamza in there, we will. He, in terms of star appeal, star value, upside, you and I have talked about him in the past. Like, that guy literally is the epitome of anytime, anywhere. He'd go every day if you let him, right? Yep, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, it was looking like we were going to be able to keep him really active, but... Lots of crazy things happen in this business, man. You know, and plus he's in he, he's in another country, and with all the nuttiness going on right now, and getting people in and out of places, you know, it's it's it, this business is challenging. Normally, now with the world all upside down, it, it, it makes it even better. It's hard. Dana White joining us, so I'm just jumping around really quickly. What do you make of Henry Cejudo? You know, all of a sudden, he's making a lot of noise about being or getting a shot as a three-division champ. Is he no longer retired anymore, or is he just making noise? He is retired. I mean, the guy's retired. I, I, I got into this with the press the other day. It's like they're, 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 they're going, why wouldn't you give Henry this fight? Like, this is a silly conversation. Why are we even talking about this? You're talking to me about a guy who's retired. He's not even in the USADA pool right now. Huh. You know, you, you have to. There's a certain amount of time that you have to be in the USADA pool and being tested, and you don't make fights on Twitter. Right. You, you pick up the phone, you call, you say, "I want to come out of retirement." 
what, what, what's, what's the protocol? What do I need to do? All so, right, well, let's so get it moving. What's he doing? Just making noise, look at me, react to me, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, in, his, in his mind, he probably wanted to fight and didn't think it out properly. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what he really wants to do here in the next couple of weeks. Talking to Dana White for a few more moments. You know, it's been a little over a month since Juliana Pena <clears throat> defeated Amanda Nunes. I mean, what a night that was. I thought, in, in a sport, Dana, where I know that literally everybody, everybody except Habib loses, like everybody loses, I thought that Amanda would never lose ever again, and right. she did, and Juliana was amazing. So what are we talking about? Like, what would a rematch look like? Massive. Yeah. I mean, that rematch is, is, is really big, and it could possibly be the biggest women's fight we've ever done. So... Um, we're, we're working on that right now, too. See what Amanda wants to do and when she wants to come back and, and, and get this rematch. Hey, you've seen this before. Like, some people, when they lose, they're never the same. Any concern at all how she responds and how she comes back? What do you think it'll be 100%, like for her? And, and, and it's exactly like what we were just talking about two seconds ago. Another woman who's very wealthy. You know, uh, she's been a two-division world champion now for a long time. Done it all, seen it all. Just had a baby. And, um, you know... It, it gets harder to be that 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 savage and that killer you were when you were when you were young and hungry. Dana White with me for another moment. Our guy Jake Paul continues to make noise about you. What do you okay? What do you make of him overall as a fighter and a businessman? Well, listen, the, the kid. Everybody thinks that I hate Jake Paul. I don't hate Jake Paul. I don't even know Jake Paul to hate the guy. Um, and he's out there doing his thing. He's he's trying to make some money, just like everybody else is. Um, you know, he, he came out and said some things about me. I challenged him to, to, to drug testing, which he completely disappeared and wants nothing to do with it. So I, I'm at a place where I'm like, why am I arguing with this guy who isn't under contract with me, doesn't fight with, for me and, and probably never will fight for me. This is, this is ridiculous. So I told, I, I, I did the Nelk boys podcast yesterday. I said, I'm, I'm not even talking about this guy anymore. It's just, there's no need for he and I to go back and forth about anything. Mm-hmm. All right, so one last guy. What about Connor? We always talk about Connor. You, you and I talked about his status back in December. You made the point that look, it's going to be a while before he can put real torque on that leg. Is there any update or any time frame on Connor McGregor? Yeah, I, I haven't talked to him about it recently, but uh, the last time that we did talk about it, he felt like uh, he felt like he was going to be ready to roll this summer. So we'll we'll see how this plays. Like I said, we got fights made right now, all the way up until like May second. So. In the next uh, three, four weeks, I'll be giving him a, a call and see how he's feeling. Okay, so you're back in SoCal, UFC 270, big, big night. If they have not seen this before or don't know the drill, what do they do to see what's going to happen this weekend? Yeah, ESPN Plus pay-per-view um, this Saturday night. And the prelims, uh, well, you can watch the whole card on ESPN Plus or the prelims will be on ESPN too, the network. What about the in-house gate? Are there tickets left? Yeah, there are some tickets left, but this thing's going to be a sellout on on Saturday night. You know, when I say there's tickets left, there's a handful. So get going. Dana White, UFC president. And as I mentioned, the first time we have done this in studio in more than two years. Dana, really good to see you. Good to see you, you. brother. Dude, have a great weekend. Thanks for coming in. You too. Thank you. Appreciate it. Dana White, don't ever forget, too. He was my guest on our podcast number 200. So there you go. 
So does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for all the good stuff. Well, let me tell you about a very simple way to get all that entertainment that you love without all that hassle I'm talking about, and it's a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before. So you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again. And the very best part, there is no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible devices required. Content varies by package. I want to talk some more about the Cowboys. Specifically, I want to talk about Mike McCarthy, bottom line, nobody was rooting harder for the Pacers last night than Mike McCarthy. Because if Indiana did not come back from last night, come back, and Russ Westbrook was not benched last night, and the Lakers were not leaking that they weren't going to fire Frank Vogel last night, Big Mike would have been the number one topic today. I made it all the way into hour number three without really getting into this. Because yesterday, the big fella got in front of a set of microphones and once again tried to explain one of the greatest plays in the history of the NFL. Check this. Prescott takes the shotgun snap. He's going to run around left guard. Prescott slides inside the 25, but there's eight seconds left in counting. They scurry up to the line of scrimmage, down to two down to one it's down to zeros what will they say here san francisco onto the field with the coaching staff and the sideline players they think it's over well the umpire had a hard time getting that spotted because there's bodies going everywhere and he got knocked around a little bit that's the end of the game hell yes it is i want to repeat that's not only my favorite play ever in football i think that's my favorite play ever in sports I haven't loved to play like that since the butt fumble. And this is even more epic because it went down in the postseason and because it was planned. And if you think that Mike McCarthy has any regrets whatsoever about that play call, three days after that gem, he was still defending it and still doubling down and still saying everything about that play was awesome. So our threshold in that situation is 13 seconds. You know, so we were 14 seconds, so we're, we're clearly within our range. And our thought process there is we're looking for a quick throw or the check to the draw. But based on them being the sideline and with Armstead being at the, you know, the nose, he's at the, playing the jumper spot position, we went from the three-step to the, to the draw. So it's the right call. Uh, the situation's right off the call sheet, and so that part's right. It's the right call. The situation's right off the call sheet, so that part's right. He just said that. Man, no one better than the big fella. Like, he hears everybody on the entire planet saying there's not enough time to run that play. And by the way, everybody on the planet is right when they say that there's not enough time to run that play. Yet, he's like, hey, there was more than enough time. In fact, we had extra time. If anything, we almost had too much time. Never mind, it was one of the dumbest calls ever. He's not coming off that point. You ask the big fella, he would tell you, right call, at the right time, right off the play sheet, we'd do it all over again. Yeah, all right, all right. Let me ask you this. I'll play along. Mick Chunky, I'll play along. 
if that was the right call at the right time, right off the play sheet, how come it didn't work? Was it because Dak Prescott handed the ball to the center instead of an official? Nope. Apparently, Dak also did the right thing. The center can spot the ball. The receiver can spot the ball. So uh, the opinion of you can't spot the ball is, is, is not correct. Uh, so the center can spot the ball. Our guys are trained to spot the ball exactly how the referee spots the ball. You know, obviously the umpire has to come in. He, all he has to do is touch it. We're in a 3-2-1 situation. You snap the ball. So obviously that didn't happen. But as far as the training of Dak getting the ball to Tyler, Tyler getting it down on the hash mark, you know, that part was intact. So obviously we got to factor in what happened there, you know, at at the end of that play because um, we've repped it. So not only was Dak not wrong to give the ball to the center, but he did exactly what they told him to do. He did exactly what they had practiced over and over again. Yeah, one problem, Mike. The center is not an official. Was the center noting where Dak started his slide? Was the center lining it up with the line judge? Because that's what the official is doing. The umpire wasn't just running up there to touch the ball, like you point out. He was going there to move it to the correct spot, which was further back. Oh, and remember, the official does have to touch the ball, right, before it snapped. You knew that, right? Because clearly Dak didn't, or he forgot. And how he forgot something that the rest of the football world knew in a situation like that is pretty hard to believe. Just like any of that garbage that's flying out of the big guy's pie hole right about now. No one better than the big fella. This guy's had three full days to think about how he wants to talk about how that horrible play ended their season. About how the entire world is clowning this guy. Mocking this guy. He had three days to think that through and work that out. And that's his response. His response was, hey, and by the way, I was right and all of you were wrong. Wrong. I'm the only one right and the rest of you are wrong. However, he did admit there is one thing that he would change. If he had to do it all over again, he would do it all over again. But if there was one thing that he would change and they ran that play in the future, he would tell Dak, don't run as far as you did. You know, the only thing that we talked about, Dak and I, was put a yard limit on it. You know, cut it to 10 yards. I mean, that, that's probably going to be the change, the adjustment that we make. Holy crap. Put a yard limit on it. Only run 10 yards, then get down. That's what you would change. Play call was perfect. Right time to do it. More than enough time on the clock. Problem is, my guy just ran too far. Big fella is becoming one of my favorite people ever. This dude just saw a quarterback draw, blow up in his face, end his season, nearly cost him his job. And his response is, the only issue here is we ran it too well. We gained too many yards. It was not only the right call, it was just too good of a call. The only adjustment we would make is not gain as many yards. This dude's incredible. Like, does this guy want the entire world to clown him? Does he want to get fired? Because there's no way he could ever say anything that ignorant and mean it, right? No way even that guy believes the bullcrap emanating from his mouth. But amazingly, McCarthy talking about that play was not the only insane thing that he said and addressed at the press conference. There was also this. I thought we were nervous to start the game. Uh, Fell it in the locker room at the team prayer. 
Well, let, let me take the word nervous back. I mean, it was, it was a little angst. Maybe it was the first time we were doing this as a whole. Oh, dude. Angst? No, no, no. They weren't nervous. There was just angst. Yeah, because that's a hell of a lot better than nervous. What trepidation, didn't want any of that. Hey, whatever they were, it's on you. If they were nervous or there was angst or they were freaking the hell out, that's on you. How the hell is that on anybody other than the coach? How is that anything but a reflection of the head coach? And then, and then you want to talk about a dude knowing how to close a show. You want to talk about a dude knowing how to close a presser. Not only did dude defend literally everything that went down, although none of it was defensible, he ended the session by reminding everybody that although he's no longer in Green Bay, he is, in fact, a modern-day Vince Lombardi. I know how to win. I know how to win in this league. I know how to win playoff games. I know how to win a championship. So I have great confidence in that. Uh, what we've built uh, here in two seasons, I feel very good about. Um, and I think with that, uh, you just you stay true to that. This dude, you can sum up that presser with the following. I'm right. You're all wrong. Damn, I'm good. Drop the mic. Walk off on that. Head directly to Jarrah's office. Sit down. Put your feet up on his desk. Demand a raise and a piece of the team. Man, no one bleeping better. No one bleeping better than old Coach Monkey Butt. Monkey Just butt. ask him. Man, can you imagine a couple of unemployed dudes couple of unemployed dudes, no names mentioned, watching that presser. A couple of unemployed dudes just stopped whatever they were doing. Told everybody around them, shut the hell up. Shut the hell up. They raise the volume up and they start the slow clap. Tears of pride flowing. Coach Nagy. You know, old Coach Pennis and Cracker Jack. In his home office, updating his resume, a tear in his eye. You got Joe Judge with a folded slice of extra cheese pizza in his mouth and a Mick Ultra in his hand. Pervin Meyer at the bar gets off the bar stool, tells the young co-ed in front of him to move over, walks closer to the screen to get a better look. Damn right it was the right call. Nagy, under his breath. Don't question the scheme. That's a 100% scheme, Brad. Joe Judge, going on an 11-minute diatribe about how it was the right call, and it's never your fault. Everybody at his weeks-long pity party just rolling their eyes. I know how to win. I'm a damn winner. I always win. It was the right call. I'd do it again. I would just tell Dak, get down. Man, this dude's something else. He had three days to think about that, and that's what he came up with. I, I almost respect it. In fact, don't change. I know you won't, Mike. That's the good news. If you're like me, your weekend plans include kicking back and watching live sports. And it doesn't matter what sport you're watching. It's always fun to have a little action. Personally, to start the new year right, I've got my eye on the critical NFC Divisional Playoff matchup in Green Bay. 
That's why I recommend downloading the WinBet app right away. Whether you're a recreational player or a serious handicapper, WinBet is your ticket to every exciting wager, from straight bets to parlays, teasers, and any exotic proposition wager that you can dream up. The app is easy to use, and everybody knows Win is one of the biggest and best brands in the gaming industry. So get off the sidelines. Join in on the action. Download the WinBet app on Google Play or the Apple App Store today and put yourself in the game. Win with WinBet. Terms and conditions at winbet.com. You have to be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or somebody you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Matt Corral is my guest. Matt, good to have you on. How are you? How you doing, Jim? Good, dude, good. Actually, let me rephrase that. You're now roughly three months away from the draft. So, where are you at right now, and what is life like for you at this moment? Uh, Well, currently I'm outside my gym, um, and uh, just rolled out prior to this phone call, and I'm just going back in right after to get the work in. Um, That's pretty much all my life's been (laughs) ever since I I left college. Um, Just been lifting and working out every day and going over the board work daily. So, I mean, that's this, this is my life now. No, I get I that. Could, I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> uh, sorry to interrupt. I'm starting to jump in on you, Matt. I, I get it. Like, I've talked to so many prospects. It's so true. Like, you're in college, and your life is so structured, and you do a certain thing for so long, and then you get out, and th- this is what it is. This is your life, getting ready for the draft. So what's it like to be in this position where you're three months away from the draft, and you've got a really good look at being the first quarterback off the board? Uh, you know, it's truly a blessing. Um, you know, like I said, just the people that I've crossed paths with and just in my uh, career playing football so far, and it's just, you know, relationships that I have for life. And, um, you know, as far as coaches, players, teammates, um, you know, like I said, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. And, uh, you know, just to be in this position is really a blessing. NFL draft prospect, Matt Corral joining us. Now, normally when I talk to a draft prospect, I get to the high school a little bit later on, but I'm going to go there right now because you went to Long Beach Poly. I've got tremendous respect and love for Poly. My wife went there, so I've seen this thing up close. I've heard about it for years and years and years and years. There is an amazing and rich tradition with that program. I'm curious, what was it like to transition from Oaks Christian to Poly? I mean, absolutely. It was different. Just the tradition there alone, it's it's very strong. You know, the, the Polly family is really strong. And, you know, I still am in contact with those people to this day. Um, you know, I had a great coaching staff there. They're very, you know, highly touted coaches that, that's been there and done that throughout the process that I'm currently going through right now. And, uh, you know, they, they've helped me along the way. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to be a Jackrabbit. <laughs> and, Matt, let me it's tell different. you, I think I, – I don't think, Matt, that – I think I'm correct in saying this. I think that Pauly has sent more players to the NFL than any other high school. And I could pick any number of these guys, right? But the one guy that always comes to mind is Willie McGinnis. And I bring up Willie because he and I go back a long way. And this is just such a strong dude, such a proud man. I know how much he loves that school. What does he mean to that program? And then how often would he come around? Uncle Willie was there every Friday at our games. You know, his – I want to say his nephew was playing. Yeah, his nephew was playing. Ryan Nixon was my was my teammate, and um, you know me and Ryan were good friends, or still are good friends. And um, yeah, uh, Uncle Willie was there every weekend, and he always gave us advice whenever we needed it or whenever we saw us do something wrong. You know, he was always there to to fix it and point us in the right direction. And I'm forever grateful for that. 
Matt Corrales joining us. You know, so I asked you about the transition, right, from Oaks Christian to Pauly. What was it like to go from Long Beach to Oxford, Mississippi, and become the face of that program? What was that transition like? Oh, it was different. You know, just coming from Southern California to, you know, Mississippi, um, you know, just the environment and, you know, the people out there in Mississippi are very welcoming. You know, it's very family-oriented. Um you know, as soon as I walked into a restaurant, you know, people knew who you were all of a sudden. You know, out here they don't, <laughs> they don't really care. But uh, as soon as you step into Mississippi, you know, football's a football's a different on a different stage out there. You know, just the SEC in general, and you know that that is something that I that I wanted to experience myself, and you know I did, and you know I I'm glad I didn't make any other decision but that. So, Matt, a few months back, Lane Kiffin was raving about you. He said, quote, Ole Miss fans need to appreciate this while you have it. This is a generational arm talent that you're going to get spoiled with. Not too many people can ever make the plays that he's making, and there are a lot on Sundays who start who can't make them, end of quote. I'm curious. That's an amazing praise coming from him. Lane, Lane is an incredible persona on social media and in press conferences, but from a coaching standpoint, what was he like to play for? different you know um i believe there's truly like different in a good way i believe there's there was nobody that had the relationship that i have with my head coach across the country like me and him were, were really close and i'm not just him it's just my oc too as well jeffrey levy um you know just the i i got blessed with coaches you know i got lucky with coaches who cared about the uh the person matt corral rather than the player and the player took care of itself Hey, Matt, you mentioned Levy. I was going to ask you about him. So you've talked about the fact that Levy put you through, quote, flight school. What is that all about, and what did you learn from that? Uh, so that was just pretty much coverages, and they went through cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four, and all the certain different coverages within those coverages. Um, it was pretty much just learning the basic defenses and then transitioning those defenses to our concepts, and that just made it much easier. From, from what I'm looking at on the field perspective, just and that that was something I've never done before, you know. And I thought I I thought I knew defenses, and you know I went through this, and you know I didn't know I didn't even touch the surface of it. So you know it was definitely just to get that experience. Because I know a lot of people don't do that at, at the schools they're at. So that, that was definitely different, and you know it's definitely worth it in the long run because it is a lot of work in the beginning. Oh, hell yes. And Matt, the thing is, I mean, like we could spend all day talking about your arm and the fact that you've got this generational arm talent, but the fact of the matter is you're right. All those things you're talking about, these are not easy things to learn. They require a lot of work. I mean, did you enjoy that chess match? I mean, it probably was challenging going through it, but did you enjoy the chess match once you started to get good at chess? Absolutely. I mean, it was frustrating at first, but the way like my, my brain's wired, like I, I can't just just lay down and quit, you know, like I, I get upset and I go in and do more just so it gets easier for me. And, you know, it's just how my brain works. And, uh, you know, as soon as I went in more and more, putting more hours into it, it became easier. And obviously, and then, you know, I, like I said, I had, I had, I had tons of help too, like from, from Matthew Holacek, the GA, you know, he, you know, he was with me every step of the way. And, like, he's the one that's doing my board work right now for the pre-draft prep. And that's just – it means a lot to me that he's taking his time, you know, uh, out of his day because he is with Jeffrey Levy at OU right now. And, um, you know, just be, just him taking me through this process and still being here with me even though he doesn't have to, you know, that means the world to me. 
Matt Corral joining us. I can see, Matt, why people respect you so much as a leader, the way you were making it a point to make sure that everybody gets credit. I want to ask you about something because coaches do talk about the fact that you've got a toughness and you've got a leadership and that other guys follow you and guys want to play with you. There's a really interesting moment from when the team was meeting and talking in the wake of George Floyd's murder. As you said, Otis Reese, a DB, said, hey, F all that. Matt, you're the quarterback. What do you think? And you said, that's how I got put on the spot. What was that moment like for you as a leader? It was a refining moment, definitely. Um, you know, <clears throat> just going through that process and just, you know, hearing everybody's thoughts, you know, everybody everybody put in their thoughts. Everybody was standing up in front of the team saying what they say. And that's not, that's not normal. You know, not everybody gets to speak in front of the team. Like, it's a privilege to talk in front of the team. And as soon as, you know, Otis said that or OT said that, it – it, it did put me on the spot because I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. Cause people know, like people understand how I am. Like I'm, you know, I love everybody and it's not it matter if you're black, white, purple, yellow, it didn't matter. And just telling my experiences, you know, growing up and then going from Oaks Christian to Long Beach Poly. And then, you know, just getting into the details of that. Um, it was something that, that resonated well with my team and they respected, you know, what I had to say. And, you know, that, that was his, the rest on his history because after that, I became more comfortable. Keep in mind, like, this was the first time I've ever spoke in front of my team, really. Like, because this was, I think, in the beginning of the last season or the beginning of the first season we had together. Or, excuse me. Yeah, beginning of the first season. So, beginning of the second season. And this was really where I was becoming, uh, starting to come out of my shell and really just be a vocal leader. You know, I was always a leader by, um, by action. But I was never really, you know, vocal, and it, it was something that I've always wanted to, to be like. But I could never f- put myself out there to do it, just because I, you know, I, I just get nervous. And then I finally got put on the spot, and then a- that, after that on, it, it just became easier. Good for you. Good answer. I really respect that. I appreciate that. And that had to have been a defining moment for you and for the team. Matt Corral is my guest. You're partnering with Optimum Nutrition for their amino energy drinks as part of a new NIL campaign. Lay it out for me. What's that all about? So I'm working with uh, Optimum Nutrition, you know, a world leader in sports nutrition to promote their, their new amino energy drink, which is great for any time energy for a busy lifestyle like mine. Um, it's great to work with on uh, Optimum Nutrition because they're a great brand with products I can trust. And, you know, it's great that they can finally – um, work with collegiate athletes at the time that when I was one. So you've got a good opportunity there. Good for you. Matt, I'm going to ask about one more thing, and I appreciate that thought too. The, something that comes up with loyalty, one of your teammates at Pauly, Jalen Hall, got in trouble with the law and was incarcerated for 30 months. You were one of the people who called him and spoke to him on the phone the most. What does that relationship mean to you, and why was it so important that you stick by him when others in your situation might not have? Well, okay, so Jalen was very, um, you know, I don't, I don't get along with a lot of people, and I don't say that in a way like, like I'm bad or like I, don't think, I think everyone else is bad. It's just like I don't click with a lot of people to hang out with them, you know, every single day. You know, like, I, I, I just, that's just how I am for so, for some reason. Like, the people that I, that I become close with, it's, it's not many. I could count on my hand, on my one, on one hand that, uh, on how many people that I could trust. And You have a tight you know, circle. You keep your circle yeah, tight. of course. And Jalen was one of those dudes who I was with every single day. And, like, what the media put out about him, like, 
yes, I know what he did was wrong. Yes, it, I don't, I don't agree with it. And yes, it was wrong. It was playing out wrong. And he, that's just, that's not the side of Jalen that I knew. And, um, you know, I know Jalen and I know his life story and he didn't have it easy. He didn't have it easy by any means. And, um, you know, me and him were on a mission together to get what we wanted out of life, and we shared our dreams and we shared our like our stories together. And that was something that I like with my friends and family and my brother. Like that's something that I hold tight dearly to me. And um, you know, it's still to this day, I'm, I'm still in touch with Jalen. He's out. He's out now. Um, I have yet to see him because I just you know I just got back and um, been going through this whole process. But uh, he's doing well. You know, thankfully, and uh, he, he's on the right track. And now a message from Discover about rewards. If you're a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for your loyalty, preferably with something that is useful, you know, like cashback match. Discover matches all the cash back that you have earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards that make sense. Discover exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. Drew Valentine is their head coach. He joins us. Drew, it is great to have you on the show. Drew, how are you? I'm good, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Drew, it's great to have you on. I've been looking forward to it, and there's a number of things I want to talk to you about. You beat Evansville at their place on Tuesday. You've won 10 straight. You are unbeaten in conference play. You're 22 in the AP poll. How would you describe where the team and the program is right now at this point in the season? Um. You know, it's a great question. I think that we're in a really good spot right now. Um, obviously, there's so much to improve on. There's so many ways in which uh, we feel like we can be better. Um, we had a couple slow starts, uh, three games in a row uh, prior to our last game against Evansville. Um, you know, we, we feel like we can get better um, defensively. Uh, I think our last game versus Evansville kind of showed where we think we can be at um, as far as the defensive team. And um, but I, I'm really loving our resilience right now. I'm loving our competitive spirit. I'm loving this guy's focus, uh, and most importantly, their togetherness and, and ability to just find a way to win. All right. So, Drew, the thing is, everybody who knows you knew it was only a matter of time before you became a head coach. But in talking to a lot of coaches over the years, they always say that no matter how much you've prepared, being the head coach is still a major, major adjustment. You might move one chair over, but it might as well be like five thousand miles. What's it been like for you? It's just been crazy. It's been a, a complete whirlwind, um, you know, ever since, you know, April, uh, the beginning of April when I when I took over the job, uh, figuring out staff, um, you know, getting to know some new staff members, uh, letting them into the culture, then, you know, trying to figure out what the roster was going to look like. And, and with the COVID year, um, you know, trying to figure out which, which one of those, you know, COVID seniors were going to come back and then freshmen. And, and so there's just so many things that I've learned so many things that, that I'm um, still trying to get better at and improve on. And, and I think that's been just my mindset through it all is just, you know, take thing, take things as they come um, and, and do your best to, to figure out and, and, and uh, do them the best that you can along the way. True Valentine joining us. Now the story goes that when Porter Moser was leaving, the AD Steve Watson asked you if you want the head coaching job and you just busted out laughing <laughs> and said something to the effect of, hell yes, I want that job. What was the conversation really like? And then what did it mean to you to be named head coach of such a great, great program? I mean, it, it truly was that simple. Um, you know, uh, it's crazy because, you know, when uh, Coach was Coach Moser was, was, you know, going through some, you know, uh, 
potential leaving a couple years ago, um, myself and Steve Watson kind of started having some conversations, not, not monthly, not weekly, um, but just a couple times during, during the last couple years. And, and I felt like I was in a position and, and I knew that, you know, he kind of thought highly of me enough that to possibly um, take over this, this position as head coach here at Loyola one day. And so um, when, when coach Moser decided to, uh, you know, take the job at Oklahoma, it was, it was really that simple. And so um, I'm, I'm, so blessed i'm so grateful i'm so thankful um in their trust and belief in me to uh to take over this program and to try to you know keep us improving and taking this thing to new heights right Drew. not only the belief of like the athletic department and the ad but the players themselves you mentioned the seniors in a COVID year when you were named head coach a number of your possible super seniors told you that they would be coming back to school what did that mean to the program and to you personally I mean, I think it meant a lot. I think, uh, you know, as a coach, you know, I think it, it, it's pretty coach speak and pretty cliche to talk about relationships with your players. But I think there's no uh, more greater validation of that for me, for, for you know, my my relationships. I know how I felt about my relationships with those guys, but for those guys to trust me um, with their last year and, and, you know, have enough trust that, that we could be a good team and, and win a champ- possibly compete for winning championships this year, um, and help them grow as players and help them develop and, and improve, um, you know, for one extra year of college. It meant a lot to me um, for all the guys that decided to come back. I mean, we, uh, you know, returned seven of our top eight scores, you know, obviously from a team that made a Sweet 16 last year. And, and you know, there's some guys that, that, you know, last year might not have played as much as they wanted to. And uh, I was still here. So it's not like uh, um, somebody new was coming in and selling them a new dream. I, I you know, my my slogan and, and phrase catchphrase I guess uh, that you could say when I first took the job was I wanted to stay committed to the culture that we established here at Loyola Chicago and so um, it meant a lot for me for them to have trust in me and uh, gave me a lot of confidence and and uh, that's a that's a huge part in, in which I think uh, that why we're why we're rolling right now is the belief and trust that they have. Uh, within this culture and within this program here at Loyola. Drew Valentine joining us. All right, to that point, culture. It's interesting because your mantra is committed to the culture. Porter Moser had a phrase, created by culture. So how would you define the differences between those two mantras? Yeah, I just think it's, um, you know, obviously they coach and and the the previous assistant coaches that worked here, the previous players, I, I talked to those guys all the time. I was actually talking to Clayton Custer um, on Wednesday, um, and you know he was you know telling me congrats on the win, congrats on the start, and I'm like, hey Clay, this this whole thing here wouldn't be um, in place without the foundation that you know guys like you, like Milton Doyle, um, Dante Ingram, Marcus Towns, Andre Jackson, the, obviously Cam Crutwig, the, the the culture that those guys established, and so when I when I took this thing over, I, I wanted everybody to know that it wasn't just going to be a uh, complete changing of what we know that works here at Loyola Chicago because, you know, Coach Moser obviously had a, a great formula for for what works at this at this program at this level, um, and obviously in, in the league and, and, and nationally as well because um, we've had a lot of postseason success. And so, um, since that's been so successful and since I've been a part of helping create that culture, I just wanted uh, everybody to know that we were going to remain committed to those values, those standards, those championship standards. Uh, that we have established here at Loyola.
Drew, so what about that? Like you, you obviously worked with him, and some people have even referred to you as Porter 2.0. Fact is, you're your own guy, you're your own person, you're your own coach, but what did you learn from working with Porter? I mean, so many different things, so many different lessons. Um, you know, balance, um, you know, I think he does, an, does and did an incredible job of, um, you know, being, you know, being a, a really good father, being a really good husband, um, and then also being a really good basketball coach and, and all the things that go into the job. I think I learned, um, you know, I already got had a really good start in my coaching career with, with Coach Tom Izzo on, on preparation and, and, and what it takes to be successful uh, each and every day in, in a championship-level program. But I think Porter just did it in, a, in another different way. So I learned more about preparation, uh, learned more about recruiting, learned more about organization, scouting. I mean, there's so many different things uh, that go into this job. Um, that, that I learned and took from him, and, and I'm really grateful um, that not only I got to learn from such a great basketball coach, but a great person. So, Drew, you were 29 years old when you were named head coach, making you what is believed to be the youngest head coach in D1 basketball. You hit the ground running. You're connecting with players. You're connecting with recruits and more. And then just a few days after you were named head coach, your wife Taylor, who was pregnant, was not feeling well and then went to the hospital. What happened next? Yeah, so I was literally my mom had had uh had just got here. Um, she was helping me kind of redecorate the the office here um, in the uh, G- Gentile Center. And um, Taylor called me and was like, "Hey, I think you need to get here." And I was kind of being hesitant at first. Uh, and uh, I ended up going to the hospital. And and just about an hour after that, my my daughter Hayden was born. And so it was a whirlwind. Uh, she stayed in the NICU for, um, you know, just over 13 weeks, you know, almost, almost, uh, three and a half months. And so it was just like every day I'd, you know, be working. And then, um, she actually had to get, she was at one hospital, then got transferred hospital. So I'd make a drive up to the hospital, then drive home. And so it was some long days and long nights and obviously a lot of emotions. Um, you know, she had a couple different procedures on her, on her head and, um, it was just, uh, it was a grind, but I'm lucky that I have a superstar wife who is now a superstar mom and, and, um, lucky that we have so much support from, um, people here in the university and obviously our family and friends as well. So true. So people understand your daughter was delivered 11 and a half weeks early and you talked about what it was like. And Taylor said, quote, it's a lot on your mind. It's a lot on your body, but he handled it. He handled all of it. He was just a warrior. I guarantee that you would say the same thing about her. You know, you and I talked about what you learned from Porter Moser. You mentioned Tom Izzo. What did you learn from Hayden during that time? And what did you learn about yourself? Yeah, I, you know, first and foremost, I got to, obviously, people talk about it all the time. They don't, you don't know what it's like to uh, be a parent until you are one. And so um, I think I've uh, got a better feel with, like, our parents. Um, here at Loyola, like when I speak to them about about their young men that are that are a part their their sons that are a part of our program, I think I um, can try to sympathize uh, with them a little bit better. I also learned just how fragile life is, um, how important just um, small small victories and small milestones are. You know, like, and then you also you know take another um, lesson in, in you know pushing through adversity. You know, everything doesn't always turn out perfect. Everything doesn't always turn out the way that you kind of envision it in your head. But when things happen, you got to figure out the way to to handle them the best way you can. And 
Um, you got to have confidence and, and belief in whatever that might be, whether that's your faith, whether that's um, your family, whether that's your values, um, that, that things are going to work out the way that, that they're destined to work out. And so uh, I learned a lot of that um, and uh, through my times, and I'm still learning that um, ever since I've been at that. Listen, you've been through quite a bit. You've learned quite a bit. Before I let you go, you're not just a head coach. You are also a, and a father, husband. You're also a legendary sneakerhead with a collection, Drew, <laughs> that is so well-known. There is a Twitter account dedicated to it. What are the highlights of your collection? Man, I've, I've got so many. You know, sneakers, they mean so much to me um, just from an emotional standpoint. I mean, I... Uh, uh, I mean the the black and red band Jordan ones. Those are my favorite pair of sneakers. I also love the um, Space Jam uh, Jordan Elevens. Those are one of my favorites. And then a couple of new ones. You know I love the Nike Dunks. Um, you know we've got, we've been wearing the, the Midas Gold Nike Dunks that are kind of like Loyola colors. The black and white. They call them the Panda Nike Dunks. I love those as well. And then uh, I got a couple the Amamaniers. I'm actually going to wear those coming up here pretty soon in a game. And then I also love like the Travis, the Travis Scott, uh, Cactus Jack, uh, Jordan one lows. I love those as well. I love that. So really quickly, like I, I understand this, but why do they represent so much to you? What do they represent to you? You know, just like culture, you know, like, like the culture that I grew up in, you know, where it's kind of like the intersection of, you know, like hip hop culture, whether it's music and, um, you know, basketball and, and football. And, and uh, it's just kind of like how I grew up. And then, you know, they have meaning from different times in my life, you know, whether, you know, the last shot Jordan 14s, you know, that was a, the, like the first, you know, one of the first NBA finals I can remember. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, that young. <laughs> um, oh, Michael Jordan hit his last shot. Um, we were downstairs in my basement and I remember running around in the basement with my dad, you know, the Jordan threes, those are my dad's favorite pair of shoes um he always had a pair of white and cement jordan threes so like there's just different things that connect me to times in my lives and kind of put puts life in perspective for me so um i have a lot of gratitude towards towards sneaker culture and um just it, it gives me like you know like a, a sense of pride when i can put on a fresh pair of kicks. like I, I sort of want to apologize in fact i do want to apologize for still keeping you here i never do interviews this long but this is how interesting you are to me drew i gotta ask one last thing you had a really nice career playing at oakland you had opportunities to play professionally but you made the decision to get right into coaching what was that decision making process like for you at the time yeah it um it, it, I, I had a you know a couple injuries i had surgery on my hand I had, uh, you know, a knee surgery right after the, my senior season. I played basically a whole season on a, on a torn meniscus, and I had a, a, a you know, some, something wrong with my hand as well. So um, when I was, like, rehabbing from those injuries, I, I just – my body wasn't feeling up to par. And then also um, I thought the opportunity that Coach Izzo, I'm, I'm so grateful for, um, he had given me the opportunity to be a grad assistant. And, you know, I kind of looked at some of my, my former teammates that were – you know, at that time playing overseas and a lot of them were, were trying to find a way to break into the coaching profession. And I thought at the time, like, Hey, if I'm only going to go over and play overseas, cause my body will probably won't allow me to, to play more than a couple of years. Why not just get started with, with what you're going to do for hopefully, you know, me now, hopefully, you know, 40, 50 years, um, my coaching career. And so I was fortunate to do that. And it also didn't hurt that I was going to have the opportunity to, to be at home with my brother, who was, uh, who was also he was a sophomore at the time at Michigan State. So there were so many different things, but 
I'm really grateful for that opportunity, and, and I wouldn't be here um, if it wasn't for Coach Izzo and, and um, his trust and belief in me. Very cool, very smart. He's the head basketball coach at Loyola University of Chicago. They've got a game coming up on Saturday right here on CBS Sports Network against Missouri State, 14-2, and 5-0, and number 22 in the AP poll, and a great, great story. Drew, you lived up to all the hype. Not that I'm surprised, but I knew that you would show up and just kill it like that. Really appreciate you, Drew. Thanks so much. Let's do it again soon. Okay, of course, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Good night now!